Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello there, and welcome to the podcast, Bustle's podcast for radical body positivity, fat acceptance, and visibility for all identities. I'm Marie Southerd Ospina, and today I'm joined by the inimitable Virgie Tovar. She is an author, activist, and one of the nation's leading experts and lecturers on fat discrimination and body image. Virgie's anthology, Hot and Heavy, Fierce Fat Girls on Life, Love, and Fashion, which was published in 2012, was actually one of the first books I ever came across that tackled fat acceptance and brought together a myriad of voices to discuss weight-based discrimination. And in my opinion, she's continued to be one of the strongest, loudest, most touching voices of the movement. So we're going to chat with her about her work, as well as her recent critique on Ravishly um, on a recent episode of This American Life, which she was consulted for but didn't end up appearing on. So Virgie, thank you so much for talking to me today. For listeners who aren't super familiar with everything you do under the umbrella of fat activism, do you want to tell us a little bit more about your work? I do a lot of lecturing at universities, especially around this issue, like just explaining what fat phobia is, how it affects our life, like what diet culture is and its intersections with things like racism and sexism and ableism. Um, I also have this program called Babe Camp, which is a four-week online course um, for people who are ready to break up with diet culture and kind of need a little bit of support in doing that. And it's, it's kind of like this primer in, you know, understanding again, like what diet culture is and, and why it is. Because like, I mean, so many people are dieting and are super unhappy about it, For but sure. they don't entirely understand why. I offer language and ideas and tools. Um, and so that's something that I do a lot of. And then I think I do a lot of writing also. Um, and I have like two columns. I write a lot about helping people deal with, you know, a culture that's completely saturated with fat shame, um, negotiating relationships and friendships that are like, maybe people are having complications around because of these issues. Um, I mean, I work probably primarily, like primarily I work with women. Um, and so there's a lot of like really intense intricacies of, of like diet culture that infiltrate women's relationships with their romantic partners, with their friends, with their coworkers. And, um, and I've found that they need a lot of support. We need a lot of support in everybody needs so much support. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in like navigating and negotiating those things. So, so like my work in general, um, is like, you know, kind of holistically being an activist. I'm also really curious about your experiences publishing Hot and Heavy in 2012 before body positivity was a buzzword and before a lot of folks were a little bit more cognizant of the fact that size acceptance is a movement and that it's rooted in all these things like diet culture and fat phobia. What were the experiences you received to it like, yeah. be they negative or positive? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the the book publishing journey was really interesting and I think very informative. Um, 
you're right in in the sense that um it wasn't it wasn't there wasn't really um a whole lot happening at the time online you know um and so so I want you to like go back with me in time <laughs> like uh, about I think it was 2008 um I I go to see my friend and we're just having dinner and she's doing her master's in social work and she has to do a final big project and she wants to do a body image kind of like repository blog journal thing. And so she's asking people to contribute these stories about their bodies and their relationship to their body um, for her final sort of master's thesis project. And she says, you know what? I would really love it if you wrote an essay. Why don't you write about being fat since you talk about it all the time? And I was like, what? It was like one of those moments where I was like, oh my God, I talk about it all the time. I just had like no self-awareness that I was using the word fat, that like my friends were totally set like recognizing me as politicized around my fat so you were um, already using it in like positive or neutral connotations yeah okay. well it was kind of like I was using it in this it, I don't know if it was it was definitely not neutral I think it was very it was I'm such a reactionary person <laughs> I'm such a like scandalous like a scandal driven lady in a lot of ways <laughs> I like to like really poke at the culture that's just kind of something that's very, very I feel like it's epigenetic I'm like I come from a line of shit kicking people um and so so I got like I'm using this phrase I think at the time mostly to kind of like jar people a little bit um because it's like I'm I feel like my life is being shaped so intensely by my fatness and I just kind of want to talk about it I want to be able to like like explicitly sort of make visible that which is in that which is like silent you know definitely um because it was like fat, the fat phobia had been silently, quote unquote, in a lot of ways, shaping my adult life. And, and it was like really frustrating and angering and in some ways gaslighting to not actually talk about it. So um, I think that's what inspired all that. So I ended up writing this essay called Fatties of the World Unite, which was like um, this manifesto. It was like a blog, like literally a blog post length manifesto where I'm like, guess what? I'm tired of all this dating crap. I'm tired of like fashion. I'm tired of, you know, and it was, it was really, really a rant with no, with no like silver lining, really. I was just being kind of like, this sucks. And, and fascinatingly enough, not a lot of people were doing that at the time. So the response to that one essay that like probably 20 people read was overwhelming, right? Yeah. Um, like, you know, my friend told me that at the, uh, they had a party to celebrate the project's completion. And she said a woman came up to her and and wanted to tattoo the post onto her body, right? Because like she just felt totally visible and seen through the publication of my words. And so at around that time, I start, I want to write a longer piece called Baddies of the World Unite. And so I decide I, I like randomly I'm living in New Zealand because I met this dude online. Like, it, OK, it's a weird story. It's like <laughs> I was working in radio. The radio show was podcasted, which was a and this was like the big podcast boom, like when iTunes Ooh, was like okay. a thing. Right. Um, and so this dude in New Zealand heard the podcast, wrote me this long love letter. It was like, I've been dreaming <laughs> of you since I was like seven. You're the woman of my dreams. So I was like random. I was living on and off in New Zealand dating this like dude right like named Sam and he was amazing and wonderful um anyway so uh so I'm in New Zealand and if you haven't been to New Zealand there's like nothing to do which actually <laughs> sparks a ton of creativity I recommend anybody who's like 
creatively stuck to like move somewhere where there's nothing to do because you get so much done, right? And I wrote a book proposal in like three days. Um, and I was like, I really want to write this book. And you know, at this point, it's about 2000, about 2009. Um, I submit Fatties of the World Unite, the book proposal, to my current publisher. And I get an email back a few weeks later. She's like, I love your voice. This is really interesting. I, we, we don't, there's not a lot of manifestos in feminist publishing right now. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get it past the marketing team, but whatever happens, you're good. Keep doing it. And so, uh, you know, a few months, like a month later, she's like, okay, guess what? The marketing team said that you're not going to be able to reach the market, which is marketing speak for nobody's going to buy this book. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, and so I go to graduate school. I start researching this. I start researching fat women. Like my research is entirely focused on fat women's lives, how gender, how fatness affects gender development over a lifetime. And I'm, I'm, and I'm just going down the rabbit hole of fat activism because somebody found out I was studying this. This is how small the world was at the time. <laughs> like somebody found out I was researching fatness and was like, do you know this person? Have you gone to this conference? Have you done this? And, and it just kind of, uh, and I would just say, yeah, like I mean, I would say no, but then I'd be like, yes, I want to do it. Okay. Yes. I'll meet that person. Yes. I'll go to that conference. Yes. I'll do that thing. Um, and through that process, I've, I found, I sort of landed with deep within, um, what at the time was a very queer fat activist movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so it was like incredible, right? Because these, mostly femmes, like mostly ladies or feminine identified people, um, were, were doing this totally embodied fabulousness that I had never seen fat people do. And that was ultimately like what sort of pulled me in and like made it feel real for me. And so once I had met all of them, I was like, I have to introduce the world to these people. So in 2011, I go back to the publisher. I'm like, check it out. This thing is about to blow up. You want to get on this right now because like (laughs) these people are amazing and the world is about to find out about all of them. And you guys want to be the first people to publish like a collection by these amazing people. Um, and so they got back and they were like, yep, you're right. <laughs> and so um, I mean, I you were like, right. Wanna... Like, how much has yeah. it blown up since? Yeah, totally. And I, I just like, I just couldn't anyway. So it was like the anthology, the idea for the anthology really came out of the gesture that like, though a manifesto is very powerful. I, I love manifestos that um, that with this issue in particular, it was very important to have multiple authors because when there's a single author, it's so easy to kind of like discount um, that you as an individual reading this work can do this too. And with an anthology, there's multiple, like in this book and hot and heavy, there's 30 different people writing about how they did this thing. And I think it's so powerful to sort of, and this is like the the power of the anthology, right? Like the collective voice, the collect, Mm -hmm. the community that becomes, you know, the support system that you need to make this very courageous choice. And, 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 and in this culture, um, especially if you're a woman, um, it's such a courageous choice to choose not to diet, to choose not to, um, like live under the oppressive body standards that are expected of yeah, women. Yeah, to conform. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, speaking of which, Hot and Heavy had so many wonderful essays in there, as well as your own commentary. Do you happen to have a favorite excerpt you might want to read? Yeah, I have so many favorites, but I actually want to read from the very first 
chapter in Hot and Heavy, um, and I, I want to tell you. I, I'm going to give you a little bit of background so that the so that the cha- so that the paragraph I read makes sense. Um, but you know, it was at it was at the the No Lose, which N O L O S E, like the the Fat Queer Conference, mm. um, that I really felt embodied as a fat person for the first time and we would all sit around you know poolside and chat with each other and one of the people I met at that conference was a woman named Erin who goes by uh, Cherry Tart Um, she's a burlesque performer in Seattle and I was kind of just like as a researcher being like hey you know what like what's your story like how did you get here (laughs) you know how did you get to this point and she was like well um, I was in uh, a really, really, really bad accident, um, and uh, and, I, and I'm going to read to you like this part, and then I'll talk a little bit more about Aaron in a second. But this is going to kind of reveal what happened. Um, so she's talking to the doctor, and he says, after she, "By the way, she's been she's been like helicoptered out by like she's got the jaws of life, or she's like after a crash, jaws of life." She's being like helicoptered to a wow. hospital. Um, she is now in the hospital and, you know, she's conscious and the doctor is telling her this. He says, you're lucky you were carrying a little extra weight or you wouldn't be standing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, no broken bones, no internal bleeding. Wow. While I would not advocate going through a horrific crash to realign one's body priorities, that accident really changed how I looked at life. Not just in the lottery style, up on my accident karma kind of a way, but it also disabled my ability to truly hate on my body. My body had saved me, and more specifically, my fat had saved me. And so, like, she has this moment where the doctor is, like, telling her that if she – she didn't have an airbag or anything, right? Like, wow. It's an old school, like, Honda, I think. Um, and, and the doctor is telling her that if she had not been fat, she would be dead um, because, like, her stomach was a buffer for her internal organs. Yeah. And I just – even just, like, reading you that, it still gives me chills because, I, you know, that, that story, right – that story never gets told. The story where like fat can be this amazing, beautiful, even life-saving thing. Um, that story never gets told, even though hers isn't the only story like this, you know? Um, no, I mean, so- I remember in, I think it was fifth grade, a friend of mine in class, we were, how old are you in fifth grade? 10, 11. She was playing in the front yard of her home. This is suburban New Jersey. And a drunk driver lost control of the car as she was in the front, as my friend was, you know, in the in her front lawn. This driver lost control, hit her at about 50 miles an hour, I think it was. She was speeding on this, like, residential street, throwing this girl up into a tree, knocking her down. And it was it was a similar situation where she was told by multiple doctors that she would have died had she not been fat, had she not been carrying, quote-unquote, an extra 70, 80 pounds or so. And, right. you know, we were, we were 10, 11. Like, these, these stories are real, and we never hear about them, like you said. Yeah, yeah. And I just I just remember. um, Yes. And like, I remember, you know, listening to her story and thinking that has to open the book because it just fundamentally. Yeah. Like you were saying, it fundamentally undermines this narrative, you know, this like this mythology of fat fatness as always something that is negative and that's health endangering you know yeah absolutely and hot and heavy to me felt like such a work of fat activism rather than 
the kind of contemporary body positivity we're seeing a lot more of, since the latter is kind of something that many would argue has evolved into a very white, very cis, very able, very only marginally different to conventional beauty standards rhetoric. And a lot of folks argue that although body pause in its 2016 incarnation was born of fat acceptance and size acceptance, it's no longer catering to the more marginalized among us. You know, like the all bodies are good bodies mentality. We kind of are seeing praised a lot more by brands and campaigns and companies so often forgets that all bodies do include super fat bodies, differently abled bodies, square and boxy fats, bodies of color, visibly queer trans bodies. And I'm wondering how you personally perceive this kind of divide between a work that is obviously so about fat acceptance versus contemporary body positivity and how you kind of go about identifying identifying yourself and placing yourself within those those umbrellas. Yeah, it, it's it's complicated for me to negotiate all of it. Like in in on the one hand, right? Like my my concerns about um, people who very intensely align with body positivity versus fat positivity is that um, I or, or fat fat uh, liberation, I should say, um, is that I don't. What's hard is is I feel like mm, kind of like it, it's a it's a con- it's a convoluted language. Mm-hmm. Um, body politics, the body positivity movement is kind of a compl- is like a convoluted, obscured language. And I think that's what's hard, right? Is like fat liberation is a clear demand. You know, there's a clear like it's right there in in the term, right? Um, oh, yeah. And and I think with body positivity, you're like, what? Well, what's the what's the demand? You know, and it's sort of hard because I think that what my my problem with it is that I think a lot of people are it's easier for them to sort of co-sign on body positivity explicitly because it's unclear what the aim is. Mm-hmm. And I feel what's what's hard is that it gains traction based on the obscurity of its terms. And that's a big problem, right? <laughs> like it's like, and so like, cause I think that, and this is the problem, right? With, within feminism, like the body image conversation and feminism has, has itself historically been very bad and very obscure about its stance on body politics. Um, and I think that it's like, it's much easier to sign on to something that's vague, that isn't delineated. And I think kind of, unfortunately, that's where body positivity is. And like, I think what, what people are, are reluctant to do is to kind of co-sign on this idea that like all bodies, regardless of size, regardless of health status, deserve a life free of bigotry, period. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think that people just can't and, 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 and I want to believe and I don't mean to like reduce body positivity to like this infantilized political state. <laughs> but I kind of believe that like sometimes body positivity can be a good introduction, a good middle step mm-hmm. for somebody who is like completely unaware of anything and are, is still kind of trying to figure out where they stand on it as they weigh as they weigh the culture's sort of opinions and and ideas about this issue um i think that's an okay landing place i mean, rather it's an it's an okay launching pad um i sort of expect people politically and i i mean i have a lot of faith in people i have a lot of faith that people who maybe right now identify as vaguely as body positive um can become fat fat sort of liberationist um but yeah i think like this this change in the movement has been really 
interesting for me. And I'm actually like going to be writing an article about um, the ways in which like the sort of new, the new body positive, like white cisgender, like you were mentioning Mm -hmm. this kind of dominant face or or voice in in the sort of movement now, um, how like they use a lot of explicitly queer symbols that come Mm -hmm. from that very, like, in fact, lesbian um history of like fat activism um and and they're kind of like using these symbols in a really interesting way right like when these lesbians were doing what these women are doing now what these straight women are doing now um they were doing it as kind of like a, a really explicit like f you to the culture they were doing it as like it was political it was like it was there were a lot of gestures within that and now what I'm noticing is like these a lot of these women are doing using the same symbols but they're not they're actually trying to gain respectability from the culture using the exact same symbols and that kind of is like mind-blowing to me right um anyway so all the thoughts (laughs) for sure um, I mean, to switch gears a little bit, I, I mentioned like initially, I'm so curious about your work lecturing on some of these issues, issues of size discrimination and fat acceptance. My memories of school, albeit mostly like elementary and high school, mostly consist of like science teachers telling me I was going to die at 29 if I didn't have a lifestyle change. And I remember my, oh gosh, I think it was my sixth grade health and science teacher having like very obvious prejudices against the fat students who at this point were myself and one fat boy in the class called Bobby, I believe. And she told him like in front of all these kids that no woman would ever love a fat pig. And keep in mind, we were like 11 and 12. And the adults behind health health classes at this point were so much more body shaming than the kids themselves. You know, do you have any experiences like that from school, like of just insane fat phobia at that at that age or, you know, before college? So pretty much the entirety of my, almost the entirety of my education in fat shaming happened between age five and age 18. Mm. Um, So going to school was um, an incredibly unsafe uh, experience for me emotionally. For me, um, teachers were not so much the source of it, at least not overtly, right? Like I I noticed a lot of, especially my dude teachers, like they Mm. certainly had kind of preferential treatment for the thinner women, the thinner girls in my classes. Um, and it was very clear to me that it was happening, but like, it was not overt. Right. Yeah. Um, so I would say that almost like pretty much all of it and a hundred percent of the overt fat phobia came from my peers. And, and I want to be like really clear that the gender, like it was, it was boys, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was like almost exclusively boys who were doing this. Yeah. Um, and then and like so, maybe if they had female friends, it had like spread, but I, I definitely remember boys often being the cause of it. And then like their friends of all genders chiming in too. Right. Right. Exactly. You know, and I think it's important to kind of like really speak about the gendered nature of like body shaming, especially when we're younger, you know? Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I remember, um, all I wanted to do was to kind of be invisible. Like I just wanted to disappear. Um, I, w- I would wear very, very muted colors. Mm-hmm. I would wear like lots of layers. Um, and it was a very rare day when I wouldn't be made fun of. And like, if I had, you know, a day where I wasn't made fun of at all, it would be like a, a an intense success. It would be my idea of like, 
wow, I need to literally do like I would go home after school feeling so excited and so successful. And I would try to like figure I would try to map out what I had done that day that had made it so special and try to replicate it the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that was how rare like a day free of fat shaming was for me. And I think mm-hmm. like legitimately – I mean, that's the kind of stuff that gives people PTSD, right? Like, really kind of this, like, and I think what's so difficult is like, um, you know, I associated, I mean, I loved school. I was like a nerd. And in a lot of ways, I had a really complicated, dysfunctional family. And I saw education as a way to get out of that. You know, I saw, I saw like college as my way out of my dysfunctional family, you mm-hmm. know, and to kind of like have this vehicle be so fraught to have this thing that like brought me so much joy be at such a high emotional cost to me is so, um, unfortunate. And in fact, it's like unconscionable. Right. Mm-hmm, and I think what's hard is like a lot of fat people are just told to like ignore it and it will go away and whatever. And I'm like, no, like, do, like, do not, do not take the high road. If you're an oppressed person, like, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Like, you know, I mean, I wish I'd been told to snitch. I wish I'd been told <laughs> to defend myself. I wish I'd been yeah. like taught comebacks, you know, like these are all like, I'm like, and I, I, I said this on uh like, you know, my friend's podcast a few months ago and I was like, the high road is oversold to oppressed people. Um, and I'm like, screw the high road. Don't do it, girl. Like, don't fall for the high road fucking rhetoric because it's like a trap, you know? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I mean, so speaking with like your your lectures now, they tend to be more for, for college-aged people, right? Yes. And right. what's what's that experience like? Um, it's amazing. Like most, most of the time, like, right, like, Um, most of the time it's, uh, like really new material for most of the people in the room. Um, and they're really, really receptive. They're really into it. Right. Because like I, when I go in, I, I talk about my own life. I talk about, um, I talk about the history of dieting as something that's like 200 years old that came Mm -hmm. from, um, the mind of like this reverend who started this movement called the dietary reform movement that has the exact same um, tenets and, and philosophy as modern day dieting. I talk about the, the the recent study that found that fat discrimination shortens people's lives. Um, mm. That like it's in fact not not these kind of like things that we think of. It's not the fatness itself. The culture tells us that it's fat that is killing us. And this study shows that it's actually the ongoing stress of surviving fat shaming all the time that Mm -hmm. actually shortens fat people's lives. Um, I kind of, I talk about the gendered nature of diet culture, the way that it has a history of like female subjugation. Um, and I, I mean, I, I sort of like tell, I build this case in a lot of ways that I think that they totally viscerally resonate with. And like, so it feels really special. I mean, occasionally I have like weird people who show up who are like, like, I mean, sometimes I have these like white Republican dudes who just like, um, <laughs> they want to be enraged. They want to troll. And I'm, like, <laughs> Right. And I'm like, I'm staring like I would I did a lecture recently in like Sonoma and there was this like one white Republican kid and I was like he was like visibly shaking from me. Oh my god. Like, and I was just like, oh <laughs> I just kinda and you know, and he had like clearly been formulating like a question. He came in with like kind of an a rebuttal before I even started. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And, you know, like a lot of, and of course, these like white Republican dudes want to shut me down based on like a health argument. And I'm like, well, I'm not an expert in health. Also, all that I'm saying is compelling, like also human rights. Like, I'm just like, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna throw down with you and argue about this because I'm actually not invested in the health argument. So like, I have nothing, I don't, I'm not going to defend myself. And I don't feel like anybody else has to defend themselves around this. No. So it's like, if they always come at me with the, the rebuttal always comes from the same place. And it always feels weird. I know. Virgie, you are just know too much of a proponent of obesity. You need to stop. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, but it's like, it's so funny to me where I'm like, in the term, I, know that in the culture's mind and in these like republican dudes minds there is a direct line between what i'm talking about and health and in my mind it feels completely separate i feel like i'm like i just gave a lecture on oranges and you want to talk to me about a chair i'm like i don't know what like i have no idea i have no expertise on chairs like i just gave you an hour lecture on oranges like why are you bringing this up mm-hmm. it just feels like in their minds there it's completely they're like synonymous and in my mind i'm like no they're not i'm talking about human rights i'm talking about living a life free of stigma and you're asking me essentially well who can I be mean to that's what you're yeah. asking. Well, like when people ask me health questions they're like well if I can't be mean to fat like I have to be able to be mean to somebody like who can I be mean to and I'm just like and I'm like you're asking me for permission to be an asshole and I'm simply not going to give it to you yeah oh, it's nutty um, so now that you've had like all these experiences teaching and kind of back in the education system do you feel like looking back on when you were in school and you were facing all this fat phobia yourself speaking up and having all these comebacks to the fat phobia would have would have made things different yes (laughs) I do Um, I mean like ultimately right like yeah like yes and no right because like what's hard about having comebacks and like it really still puts the onus on the individual, um, which I'm not an advocate of. Like, I mean, in a lot of ways, a lot of my work is about equipping individuals with tools about how to deal with fat phobia. And I mean, I love doing that. I also have, I also hate the fact that like all the tools are for the people who are already suffering. Like I'm, I'm a big advocate of like people who are suffering need to be doing less work. Right. Um, So like ideally my childhood, right, like my childhood was the responsibility of the adults and the culture around me to make it safe for me. That was their job, not my job. This is true. You know, and so like I think what's what's hard is like, yes, at the end of the day, with the culture that we know as it exists now and as it existed when I was a kid growing up, absolutely as an individual response, if I had been emboldened to defend my body, Um, that would have been an incredible tool because I remember, you know, I was at one point I was about to graduate from elementary school and there was this one kid who had been relentless, just relentlessly fat phobic, um, just like shamed everything, shamed my arm hair, shamed my Mm -hmm. fat body, like just like everything was, he just like pointed out everything that he felt was disgusting about me. And finally I just hit a tipping point and I just, I, I spoke back and then he never did it again, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, it's like, I mean, I just think, you know, how, what, how, what if I'd done that multiple years before? Like when parents ask me, uh, like, how do I deal with my kid? Um, coming home crying, how do I deal with the fact they're experiencing so much fat shaming at school? Um, one of the things I advocate for them is to like consistently have the same line that when your kids come to you, have your like body positive, like fat positive 
thing that you tell them and don't change it. I think what was what was hard for me growing up was that I got conflicting messages at home. Like a lot of times my mom would be like, forget them. You know, t- you can you can use comebacks. You can like she would teach me comebacks and stuff like that, which I would sometimes <laughs> use. Um, and she would sort of tell me how beautiful I was and whatnot. But then sometimes when I, I came home and I was miserable, she would like advocate dieting and she would advocate like eating disorder stuff. And like mm. um, and I, w- I think it was like that. I mean, I don't want to blame it on my mom. Like but I think like for parents who are really invested in their children, um, sort of not being completely like shattered by this. I don't know how to, I mean, I don't think it's the parent's responsibility really. They, there's not, not a whole lot a parent can do, but in so far that a parent can do something, um, they can just have that consistent line, you know, like this mm-hmm. is like, no, your body is, everybody is a good body. Um, like, you know, and, and I just sort of, anyway, so those are kind of anyway. So yes, <laughs> yes Definitely. and no. Right. Yeah. So on to like, current events. Um, You recently wrote a piece for Ravishly on This American Life's new podcast episode, Tell Me I'm Fat, which for folks who haven't listened to it, it featured Lindy West and Roxanne Gray, both of whom are very, very vocal about issues of size discrimination, as well as writer and comedian Elna Baker. Elna was there kind of talking about being a former fat person who underwent weight loss surgery and lost 110 pounds. She admitted on the podcast to, to taking speed almost daily in order to keep the weight off. Her husband also made an appearance openly admitting that he probably wouldn't have fallen for her if she had been fat when they met. It was a really heavy, heavy hour of life. And, you know, you you had some critiques about it, which you expressed on Ravishly. And I'm wondering if you can talk about them a little bit, as well as the reactions you received for for critiquing that that podcast. Yeah. I mean, to begin with, I want to say that, like, my I have a lot of bias going in because um, they, this American life pre-interviewed me twice, like once about a year ago when they were originally thinking about doing, Mm. um, an episode on fatness. And then again, leading up to this episode, I just sort of found like, and then they kind of, you know, like two months before it aired, they interviewed me. And then I got an email after they'd already created the episode kind of saying, you know, sorry, we didn't have, we had a time crunch. We had to like, we didn't end up having time to, um, to include, personal stories and um and it was kind of like weirdly mm-hmm. I mean a I didn't believe it b it was weirdly reductive I'm like I'm not giving you personal I mean yes there's a personal story but like I'm giving you a, gr- a grand critique because I told them I was like you guys should this episode should be focused on the fact that like regardless of size or health status a person deserves to live a life free of bigotry like make the episode about the culture make the episode Definitely. about that phobia, you know? Um, and so I kind of like, I, so, so to begin with, like I already had, I already kind of felt like this jilted, like used person whose time had been wasted. So that was like, in a lot of ways, my impetus, like I was already annoyed to mm-hmm. sort of come in with to coming into it. Cause I just do not like people wasting my time, like hours and hours. So that's like the, that's the preamble. Um, I took big issue with the framework of, of the episode, which was again, repeating the framework of the, the culture kind of like where fat people, primarily fat women in this episode or formerly, even formerly fat women ha- are the ones who are on trial. They're the ones who are being mm-hmm. observed. 
Um, our privacy is already always considered non-existent. We have to share these incredibly often humiliating or ingratiating, very, very um, traumatic sometimes stories in order to convince the culture that we're, that we're right, to convince the yeah. culture that like we deserve to be treated better. Um, I, I take issue in a massive way with this kind of framework, which is kind of like the liberal framework of proving that we deserve, like proving any oppressed group deserves rights. And there's a, a very strong historical tradition of this. And I don't, I don't like it, right? Because it essentially, it requires that the oppressed person do all the labor. And then kind of like when the, when the person who's in privilege decides they want to admit that this is actually a problem, then they get to kind of like remain, but until then they get to kind of remain in the shadows right like as and not being named as complicit not being named as like you know these, yeah. these problematic kind of like co-signers on this issue and so that was it and then like for me the fact that they they really they that elna story was the central story um i took issue with that as well um like not only because she's a formerly fat person but because of regardless of like what she said regardless of the extremity of the sort of like things that she's done in order to to lose weight and to stay stay thin regardless of the fact that her husband admitted that he wouldn't love her if she wasn't fat which are all very sad and very awful things um despite that she still acted as a success story right because like mm -hmm. a, a success story for women in this culture is that you internalize the fat phobia and the sexism that the culture has taught you and you enact that understanding uh by making your body as small as possible um and then reaping the benefits of that obedience right like and, and the benefits quote unquote of that obedience are things like marriage um like heterosexual marriage right like yeah. and um and you know like certain kinds of jobs and certain kinds of clothing right um and so like i i, I did not i think that i think that even in perhaps the producer's mind or and and i think even in elma's mind she was sort of maybe acting as like this foil to the weight loss success story but that's not actually what happened right like that's not how it actually landed I think for a lot of people and I think especially for people who are deep in the cycle of disordered eating and dieting um, they did not hear that story and think wow I should probably stop doing this I think they thought wow maybe I should try this new method called you know amphetamines right like I mean I just sort of think like that was what the story effectively did and in, in terms of the reaction um, I was surprised I was surprised in a few different ways like I was surprised by the backlash, primarily from white women who themselves had lost a lot of weight, mm -hmm. who argued that I was mischaracterizing Elna and that I was like insinuating, insinuating was the actual word they used, oh, insinuating boy. that she was a drug addict. Um, it was like almost, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I think it was different people. It might have been the same person just doing it over and over with different names, but like the verbiage was almost identical um, regardless of whatever the case was. So I was really amazed by like how, how they had perceived my critique. And again, my critique was largely about the framework, right? Like I thought Elna's yeah. story had problems, but like the other interesting thing on the other end were the women who wrote me privately. So the women who were mm -hmm. lambasting me were doing it publicly, like on Twitter or Facebook, um, who were, ha who had problems with the argument. Um, and the women who, who were supportive of the argument, many of them wrote me privately in email. Um, and so I had a few women write me and say, thank you. Thank you for writing that. Thank you for like, for unveiling the lie. And, and a few people mm -hmm. who had relationships to the show 
beyond listenership. I don't want to get too specific. Um, <laughs> people had relationships to the show um, wrote me and thanked me and said, uh-huh. like, you know, I, I, I wish that it had, you know, I wish that, like, the, the show hadn't gone the way that it did. Um <laughs> And, and anyway, I, like there, there's so many like very, very private things I want to tell you, but like they're kind of, I think they could like great confidentiality. No, of course. But the point, the point being that like people in, people in close proximity to the show and people who were featured in the show wrote me and thanked me for writing that. That's, it's very, it's unfortunate to me that an episode that could have had a lot of potential to like inspire and really talk about fat phobia and dissect it and ended up just triggering so many people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's also funny. I had um, I talked to Saray Walker, who wrote Dietland on the show a few weeks ago, and she was mm-hmm. saying how a lot of women and and very often thin women have come to her after reading and really doubted some of the experiences the protagonist goes through in the book. The protagonist being Plum, so right. Plum goes through this series of dates at one point, and all the men largely insult or belittle her for her body. So a lot of readers have gone to Saray and said, you know, that would never happen. Like, a man wouldn't just, like, walk out on a fat woman on a, on a blind date and, like, tell her that she's a pig. And, and obviously it does happen and it happens, you know, yeah. it happens frequently, but it yes. doesn't always. And I'm wondering how you think kind of the narrative of, like, Elna and her husband factors into all of this. Did you, did you feel like it kind of contributed to that idea or, yeah, how do we kind of, how do we deal with that? it's important to see alternative narratives where like that behavior is not seen as universal. Mm -hmm. It's seen as deeply problematic. Um, And like, even though it might be something that is very common that like, that is not, that does not become impetus for us to change our bodies because it's an unchangeable sexist world. Um, I think that's, what's hard with, with some of it, right? Like it's so important to tell these stories, to tell the truth about like, how fat what what it's like being a fat woman dating like the kind of sexism that women experience right like in dating right and i think and and the the very specific way in which um in heterosexual dating men are taught to treat women's bodies as commodities that can improve their social standing um that's all a problem that's very real i think what's difficult is then this the takeaway that people have from that is okay there's no you know i have to change because the culture isn't going to change and i'm like mm-hmm. no right like that's not the takeaway <laughs> like the, the sort of the takeaway for me is like lambasting people who do this being incredibly and openly critical of a culture that um that promotes this and like refusing to fuel it right like refusing yeah. to pay into it Absolutely. Um, and so that, that's the hard part for me is I'm like, are there dudes like and, and to take, take it within a hetero context, are there dudes who are amazing, who don't like who know that it's not their right to demand what their partner looks like, who like have have respect for women who like actually are good at being humans? <laughs> um, absolutely. Right. And like the people who don't do that, they are not your like they're not your people, right? And I think that's what's so important is like, like when I talk to people, even people in terms of like platonic friendships, um, like p- women who are like, well, I, you know, there are these people I have these friends who are like really fat. I'm like, they're not your people. Those fat phobic mm-hmm. people aren't your people, right? And like we need to stop pretending and stop acting like this is the way society is and it's immutable. Um, we need to start expecting that like 
we need to move away from a paradigm where men feel that they own their partner's bodies. And I think vice versa, right? Like, I think we need to stop buying into this idea that like our partner's primary purpose is to increase our social <laughs> capital. Cause that's some like capitalist bullshit right there, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. So Fergie, thank you. Thank you so much for your words and your time and just the continued fight for to ending diet culture to ending fat phobia and to just making people feel a little more human yeah of course of course thank you for having me so Virgie if listeners want to find you and your work and everything you're up to how do they go about that easiest way is to go to my website virgietovar.com v-i-r-g-i-e t-o v as in victor a-r dot com or you can find me on instagram at virgietovar sweet Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find us on Acast, our awesome podcast network, and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud.